It has been said that while the agent runs the operation or investigation, the intelligence professional consumes and makes sense of the intelligence gathered by the agent. These professionals leverage more information based on intelligence community needs, vital to protect national security. While with NCIS, Bob Fletcher was one of the best. Working with hundreds of agents during his time, he made a difference in assisting special agents in protecting secrets and preventing criminals from gaining the upper hand in Navy and Marine Corps operations. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to NCIS Reports in the Field. I'm Lee Clements, your host. Uh, here I have a, a, a guest today uh, that we don't usually get, um, and what a pleasure to have Bob Fletcher, who was an intelligence operational specialist and an investigative analyst with NCIS back in the day, uh, during a, a kind of a critical time in the federal government after the Cold War was who was the enemy after uh, the Soviet Union left the scene. So what I want to uh, do is I want to introduce Bob uh, before we get started. Now, Bob is a career intelligence professional. He served in the federal government in several roles from uh, U.S. Army, Army National Guard, United States Navy, uh, with NIS first, NCIS, uh, then the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, he has many, many awards that I can talk about, but most notably, he received the Meritorious and Superior Civilian Awards, and he's a recipient of the Bronze Star from his service in Iraq, uh, along with the Iraq Service Medal in 2011. Uh, he's a published author. Uh, he's written a few articles about the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the last battle of the Napoleonic Wars in Gaeta in 1815 for First Empire Magazine. He also wrote for Panorama Magazine on Roman archaeology and brickwork, which um, if you've ever if you ever go to southern Italy, um, you need to go through some of these places on how the Romans built these. They're master builders, the Roman roads, uh, some of the Roman um, ruins, uh, just incredible. And I saw some of the Roman ruins in Turkey when I was there, and it was fascinating to see some of the best ruins that were in Turkey. So it's uh, good stuff. Um, anyway, so Bob is a, kind of a master of everything, but I'm going to start him off kind of very simply by asking him about his early life um, and kind of where he grew up and uh, who were his, uh, who his mentors and influences. Influences were. Bob, great having you on the show today, man. Uh, thank you. And uh, you're going to laugh. I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, in DePaul Hospital from, <laughs> from a non-Navy um, father and mother at the time. Uh -huh. Grandfather was a career Navy. He was a Pearl Harbor vet. And uh, his ship, last ship, is the uh, battleship Wisconsin that's in Norfolk right now. Is that right? That's pretty cool. I lived there in uh, Virginia Beach until I was about 10. And then uh, we moved and I did a year in Birmingham, Alabama. And well, well, well. Then I moved again and um, did uh, most of, of uh, junior high and high school in Houston, Texas. Very good. Then I was looking, and you're going to laugh, I, I was looking at joining the Army originally. And wait, well, wait a minute now. Hold on a second. Joining the I Army. Was, your dad I was going to join the Navy. <laughs> is well, this I how found you rebelled? more too, but uh, <laughs> is that how you rebelled against your parents? You joined the Army. <laughs> My stepdad was it was Navy, and you know he was like uh, he was tough. Yeah. Um, he had been a submariner, and he was uh, at one time Truman's electrician at the White House. Wow. So uh, his last name was Sullivan. 
Um, anyway, I went over to the recruiting offices and guess who was there? Who's no that? army recruiter. <laughs> <laughs> and I talked about the, uh, to the Navy recruiter and my stepdad would not allow me to go in. I was getting ready to graduate, but I was still only 17 and, uh, he would have had to sign. So he made, he said, Nope, this is on you. When you can do it, you can do it. When the Navy, uh, needs of the service they convinced me to go in as a machinist mate is that right go figure <laughs> oh, i got up i know i know down in the engine room really and uh, they sent me to a tdy unit in ctf 63 naples italy which was right? ad on-site component and it well, I did five back-to-back -back med cruises on ships, augmenting tenders as they came over. And that was the... Doing, doing the machinist thing? So then I did, uh, I transferred from that to the USS Puget Sound in Norfolk, Virginia, and it came right back over as the Sixth Fleet flagship. They were not going to let me out of Italy. So uh, I went... Uh, did three years there in Gaeta, and then I went from Gaeta to the USS Orion in Sardinia. So, are you learning the Italian language? You've been there for a while by now. Have you learned the Italian language yet? I tested out of uh, three years of uh, college level Italian, oh, wow. CLEP program, and uh, by that time, I'm pretty well close to being interpreter quality. I went into the security department in Naples, Italy, mm -hmm. years with them, and that started my uh, association with NIS. Joe Landon, Dale Otterbacher. There was one other guy, and if I could just remember his name, he's the one that really, really got me going, recommended me to Joe, recommended me uh, for counter drug ops, which we were doing with the Italians in Naples. And, um, all of that went well. <laughs> <laughs> Working with the Carabinieri? Uh, we worked with the Carabinieri, or CARBs, as everyone calls them. The CARBs. We worked with the Polizia di Stato, mm -hmm. a guy named Rocco, who was, uh, uh, he was all into working with the Americans. He loved us. Mm -hmm. Loved Ned. I met Sal Bortone the first time then. And, yeah, Sal. He, he's the, the man, the myth, the legend. He actually was. I talked to him before he passed away. Yeah, he is such. He was such a good man. He was what a what a valuable asset to the office. You could not do anything. And I have so many Sal stories from my time in Naples because I I got Sal in his later years, and he was just a hoot uh, every day. There was something going on. In, but what a guy! Totally dedicated to the mission. What a guy uh, to work with. He was, and I actually sat in the office with him. At the beginning, um, Joe Land and I was on the crim side. You know, they had us divided in the two offices, FCI and crim. Mm -hmm. I worked criminal cases with them um, until they got me my FCI polygraph. And that's always great fun. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> had one of those. And we've all had to go through that painful uh, process. <laughs> I've had three of them. And I got to tell you, they're not any less painful any time you do it. Now, I, 
I told him when I came back to do this job, I said, I'm not, as, as long as I don't have to do any more polygraphs, I'll be just fine. <laughs> Agreed. Um, the first part there for me in this Naples, uh, got to say, I assisted so many different uh, agents and, you know, they, the hierarchies went. I never turned down assisting an agent. Uh, I always thought that uh, that was part of the mission. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I was looking forward uh, to. I actually lost money when I uh, got out of the Navy as a first class because I went in as a GS-7. I hadn't finished my college with University of Laverne and had to work for that and through that till I got it. Then in 7, 9, 11, 12, and uh, I made 13 much later. But uh, I worked, had this now known as the second largest drug bust with Jim Lofstrom. And we oh, were what a guy you work with Guardia really de Finanza with him. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Lofton, another great name for uh, in the NCIS lore. And they had my my assigned training officer was Bob Kelson, who was in Naples at the time. And the ASAC was Joe Riccio. A lot of these names I've I you know I I remember from way back. Yeah. Um, in the squad, we had uh, Mike Lynch. I worked with him on the famous or infamous European counter network. And that was when computers were first starting. And we were lo looking at different things that people were saying online. Everybody thought it was so secure back in the days. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I did a couple of uh, things with Frank Harmon. Mm -hmm. uh, it was over for Red... Red Blanket, I think he called it. Oh, yes. Red Blanket, the notorious Red Blanket. And I knew a couple of the guys with Red Blanket. I assisted them in coordinating with the Italians. Mm -hmm. And uh, so much that Frank actually came back over to Naples. And I was still in the office then. Hey, so, um, so Bob, I, just for the audience purposes, so I can explain to them what, what to them, what Red, I've talked about Red Blanket, and I've kind of noted Red Blanket several times. But for somebody that was there in Naples, can you explain kind of in general terms what Red Blanket was? Uh, it was generally counter surveillance of the base of places, development of sources who would give us information if they saw something that was, let's say, uh, terrorism related. Yeah. Now, at the time when we were there, the... Um, General Dozier had just gotten, uh, he was released from the Red Brigades while I was there in Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to get handouts of Red Brigades material from the police and, you know, their anti-NATO, anti-American stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, the Italians, we developed a good rapport so they would tell us about certain types of terrorism and things. Uh, people may not know there was a Red Brigade's plot that I learned about later that uh, one, they wanted to attack Sixth Fleet flagship in Gaeta, and they were busted by the Italians in Formia. But they later told us, and we got some of the take of what they were looking at. Well, you know, in uh, Naples, they had you had Sixth Fleet, obviously, in Gaeta, you had um, a lot of uh, NATO uh, leadership in Naples at the, what is the south 
uh, NATO office uh, was in Capitacino. Seemed to me that uh, if I remember correctly, in Capitacino, there were a lot of um, higher ups that worked in those areas. They had the uh, Admiral um, who was Sinkus Navier at the time when Sinkus Navier was in Naples. Um, was there any uh, indication that th these guys were targeting those guys, um, uh, the Red Brigade in Italy, uh, targeting our, our asset, our excuse me, our leadership, Navy leadership in Naples? I know there was at, at time, and we did get certain reports mm -hmm. and advisory. Actually, and I hate to say this, but our State Department friends were not, not as much in the know as the Italians were in telling us. Sure. And, uh, State Department always played it down, and I always thought and later worked with the PSD team over at NATO as well. I can't remember the names of those guys. Man, <laughs> no, there's a lot of people. I probably had a hundred different NIS PIS uh, people that I knew through the 16 years that I went through NIS. Yeah, sure. Um, when I left Naples, uh, sort of bittersweet. Uh, went to headquarters, worked at 22. Mm -hmm. in a lab, <laughs> I had worked for Joe, uh, for uh, Tom Shelko in FCI. And uh, I was just sitting in the office at night doing some of my reports, uh, the infamous intelligence reports, IIRs. Sure. And uh, he walked in and said, who else is here? And I said, nobody. He said, all right, get your weapon. You're coming with me. <laughs> <laughs> this now, is I was trained. This is a headquarters. I, this was no. This was down in Naples. Oh, this don't. You were in Agnano FCI, yeah. And then I'll get back. Yeah. yeah. So we went, and he took down. He took down, and I backed him up on a uh, illegal. It was an American, and it was involving. Not it was classified documents that were not authorized for release. Sure. Okay. And I can't remember the names, but I'm sure uh, Tom Shoko would. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have had some really interesting conversations with your Italian counterparts when you're out there working every day, getting information from those guys. What would you What would you say was the most satisfying uh, relationship you had with your Italian counter counterparts there in Naples? I know that one time we got something that a three-letter agency couldn't get. Uh -huh. <laughs> but that was always the way it was. You know, it was like when, when you're, people don't understand, um, they see the TV show and they just see guys working death cases every week. But if they saw what we do, did overseas, they would be, it would blow their minds because. Oh, it absolutely would. I mean, it's just the crazy stuff that we get involved in overseas, and especially in a place like Naples, Italy, which is kind of a Wild West zone in itself. Um, and one of my favorite places on Earth, I must say, um, it, it just has to be, it just would blow people's minds. Well, there was a Palestinian that I knew, and mm -hmm. I could convinced him that I loved Yasser Arafat. <laughs> That's great. And he gave me a Yasser Arafat doll. <laughs> and he took how did me you meet, in. How did you meet took, this guy? Speaking Italian, going around to the different restaurants. They wow. lived there. There's an Arabic area down in Naples. Sure. There were several different 
Arabic organizations that went through there, including, mm -hmm. if you remember, the old GIA, the uh, Algerians. Oh, yes, of course. And he didn't like the Algerians. He thought they could go stay somewhere else. But uh, he invited me into the back of his restaurant, and he had a shrine to Yasser Arafat back there. You can't, <laughs> you can't make it up. It's just too no, funny. You can't. You can't. As One other particular. I guess, I guess people don't realize how active the Arab community was in Naples. It was a, a very diverse community, for sure. There, were, uh, there was an entire cell of the GIA out by the NATO site where old uh, in Licola that was down by the Italians and they had all kinds of automatic weapons in the walls. One other thing was uh, I took Tom Shelko, Wayne Bailey, and a source out for dinner. And Wayne will probably remember this as well as Tom. Dinner went well. Uh, the the source loved them. Everything was very good there. And then uh, Wayne says, hey, Bob, why don't you just buy us a drink now because we're no longer with the source. And we go over to a bar and he says, buy whatever you want that you think is good. That's a mistake. So I bought Fernet Branca, very strong, herbal, 100 proof, whatever, to see Wayne Bailey throw that down and along with Tom Shelko. And I'm going at, and they're, they're choking and Wayne is sputtering going, what the hell is this? And I said, well, I like it. Was this one of those after dinner drinks that we it have? It was. It was one of those really bad after dinner drinks. Yeah. Is this the one that tasted like garbage? I mean, I mean, it's like a like a licorice and garbage. I can't. Remember. I remember having it's something like that. I still have some. <laughs> you know, but you got to have that after dinner. I mean, that was kind of the whole, you know, the the dinner process. You got that, that after dinner drink, either limoncello or the uh, or that garbage licorice licorice stuff. Well, either that, or you'd be a uh, two hundred pounds. <laughs> That's a, well, you know, but. It is an acquired taste on that drink you're talking about because I've had it. it. Is. And when I first drank it, I was like, oh my God, what in the, what is this stuff? After a while, it was almost like a badge of courage. So I go, no, I don't have to limit chill. I'll take that stuff. And they bring that out for a lot of the uh, source meats that I had when I was there. Well, then I, I did go to headquarters and worked at 22. Funny because Tom Shoko was my boss again. Um, he called me in one day and he said, Bob, you got to stop scaring the analysts with all your field. Well, they've never been there up in the field. You were out, you're a field guy. That's right. Learning to be an analyst. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing with NIST, I learned never turn down a school. I went to, you know, the DIA basic analyst course, their secondary course, uh, the supervisory course. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was great education. I yeah. went to, Probably every agency out there for meetings on uh, the Beltway. It was it was literally set me up for success in all my future endeavor. Then I was on the I transferred on a it was a competitive thing job announcement NIS to be on the Cincus Navier staff in London. I got the job, so I went over there, uh, relieved a guy named Watson Pryor. Yeah, I remember was, Watson Pryor. Sure. He was a good guy. Yeah. And he 
babysat me for a couple of weeks and said, see you, I'm out. Believe it or not, you know, I still was in contact with both of my uh, Navy captains I ended up working for there for mm-hmm. six years. And then they offered me a position to go back to Naples. Mm-hmm. They were moving the staff down to Naples. And at the time I said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And that's when I went on and went to, uh, I interviewed for and got the position as an intelligence research specialist, mm-hmm. the Department of Justice in mm-hmm. Austin, Texas. So you go from London to Austin, Texas then, right? What, what was going on with the Department of Justice in Austin, Texas that, uh, that they had, had you looking into? What they did is they set up an all over the United States and still have it running today. Yeah. Uh, intelligence research specialists are in each um of their districts okay and they look at fbi product that are districts mm-hmm. and they look at it and they brief it and write and assist the bureau in writing iirs yeah well i'll say this uh when as an agent as a former agent i absolutely relied on the intelligence analyst the intelligence specialist that I worked with, not only when I was in Naples, Italy, uh, but when I was, I, I remember when I deployed to Iraq, how valuable they were. I would bring back all this stuff that I had no idea. And it was amazing to watch these guys peel off this information that I've gotten and said, oh, okay, this is going to go to this group. And this is going to go to this group. This is good for them. This is good. It, I'm just in there going, so I'm getting good information for you guys. You got to tell me what I, what you need. I'm happy to get that. And it is absolutely essential for an agent to be successful in a CI world, uh, to have a good intelligence specialist, intelligence analyst, an operational specialist. They're kind of directing you and driving the operation, if you will, kind of with the intelligence that you're you're getting for them because they can mesh that stuff out and figure out what's important, what's not. So it's good stuff. A lot of things that we can run through and it's different systems, but you can look at one piece that you bring and then you find out how it interconnects through a lot of reporting. And you're right. Um, Then later I was, uh, as you said, in the army doing Army stuff. The Army guys that I work with, uh, they're at the Strategic Counterintelligence Director, and uh, then it became the Joint Counterintelligence something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I always was very impressed with what they brought to the table, especially in 2000, when I was there in 2006 and seven and eight, um, the guys I worked with were just really, really good at what they did. It was, it was, a, it was a pleasure to work with those guys. So, um, you know, I, I know that, the work that you've done in Iraq, it, I know what, what those guys do. And I know that it was really good work. So good on you for that. Yeah. I, I got to say, uh, going back to NIST though, they set me up for success. Yeah. Some of my leadership things I've got to say is you'd see a leader you really liked and who was good, successful in the way you would be. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of special agents. Uh, I remember, uh, one of the ones that helped me get into NIS was uh, Carlos Campos. Wow, that's that's a name I haven't heard in a while. Good and name. I don't know what he's doing anymore. I'd love to hear from him, but people like that give you what you need to go to go forward. Yeah, I've got to say, for me, 
the the leadership that I saw at NIS, it did stand me well. You know, I later was the division in Southern, it was uh, 2010, 2011. I ran the human program at the divisional level and had, had to go out into the field and go meet with all the human, which were all from different types of units because we were a National Guard unit, 36th Infantry Division, we had Army regulars, National Guard, and reserves working for us. Yep. It was interesting. I had the nine provinces south of Baghdad. Wow. You I know what's amazing about that, Bob, is people don't realize how much the National Guard was involved in the Iraq War. Um, I know that when I was there with SCID, um, our National Guard elements from Kansas, Texas, Massachusetts, um, and let's see if I can remember, Kentucky um, were the ones that I worked with, and they were tremendous on getting us, you know, from one place to another, and, and they, were, they were really good. And they're all veterans of other wars, uh, Desert Storm mostly, uh, so it was great to have that experience and knowledge with you out there and not some people that just first time out, you know. You know, and, and once again, because I spoke Italian, <laughs> you're going to laugh. <laughs> They did a run through the computer to find out where their Italian speakers were. So let me ask you something. Did you ever go over to the Italian embassy in the green zone and, uh, and have to work with those guys? I uh, did not go to the uh, green zone. I went to the one out by the airfield where the uh, Italian Carabinieri were. Oh, nice. And so I worked with them. Yeah. Uh, did some things with them. And then uh, the Italian PRT was building a hospital and they were still finishing it up mm -hmm. and met with the PRT and uh, he had me there. They didn't know he had an Italian interpreter until uh, uh, they were all talking around him. And then I just looked at him and said, general, what they've been saying is, and, they, <laughs> yeah. and after that, they sort of looked at me funny. Your name is Fletcher. And <laughs> <laughs> it's not Tony Fletcher, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it's not funny, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so PRT, that's in for public relations team? Uh, that was the provincial reconstruction team. Oh, okay. Provincial reconstruction They built team. the uh, entire hospital for them out there by, uh, oh, shoot. What was that big monument that was out there that was Abraham's tomb? Um, I've never been to that. I've been to the victory over America palace and a couple of those. <laughs> I also spent a week in uh, three and a half weeks working for a no-name unit up in Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had me go through a lot of their human stuff. It was interesting. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you, oh, anytime you told them that you were former NIS or NCIS, they, they had a lot of respect. That's good. The entity and that, that always made me feel good. Coming back from Iraq, I uh, taught terrorism tactics uh, for a while as an instructor. Oh, that was when I went to Treasury and they wanted an Italian speaker because we were uh, blocking all of the different assets of known Camorra and mafia members. Well, let me ask you something. Going back to your days in this, we talked earlier about kind of the change from a, you know, of the big bad um, beast on the block with the Soviet Union. And when the wall came down and it was Russia, 
Can you talk a little bit about uh, the challenges of being an intelligence operations specialist, intelligence analyst, and trying to determine who's the new who's the new uh, bad guy that we need to look at in the U.S. government at the time? Uh, that's a big one. In that, uh, as the Soviets sort of faded away, we did. St- they still had uh, visits to Italy. Uh, had a bunch of tanks that they were cutting up. And they actually had people there. We all met with them as well, the Russian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a suspected uranium smuggler ship that was Russian. And uh, we, with the Italians, uh, used some different types of ANPDRs, uh, Geiger counter type things to go through the ship. Even the Italians, you know, were still looking at who was, who was the next big criminal, uh, even though... We looked at, you know, Lebanese Hezbollah was still, especially after the 83 thing. I sat off the coast on that when I was in the Navy. So you, I just did a show with Grant McIntosh talking about the NIST response to the uh, barracks bombing in Beirut. And, um, you know, what ship What ship did you have the pleasure to serve on during that time? USS Puget Sound. It was Six Fleet's flagship. We were there. Oh, nice. And I had to go fly around to different ships to fix their broke stuff. I was... Uh, <laughs> I was the supervisor of the uh, hydraulics pneumatics shop. You know, that that had to bring a really interesting perspective to when you switched over to the intelligence game, uh, having the mindset of an engineer, uh, you know, working on some of these uh, issues in intelligence gathering, intelligence collection, and counterintelligence. Uh, would you say that that, that job, the uh, machinist mate job, helped you in some way uh, in, in your, your time as a, a, an intelligence analyst? I'm going to say in a couple of ways, because it, it, it lets you know that, you know, all the big fluffy stuff isn't necessarily what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I did some, uh, secondary collection on some foreign uh, weapon systems mm-hmm. that actually got very high commendation on CIA. And, uh, you know, they have A, B, C, and I got a, I, I got a, my share of a level, uh, things and then I had one or two that they uh, another agency came back and asked me to restrict the amount of uh, dissemination because they wanted it and uh, they they actually met and wanted to take the source. Heard that before, <clears throat> especially in Baghdad. Oh, Baghdad, yeah, that's a whole whole different game. <laughs> you know, it was interesting because uh, you know I. I I really, I didn't value intelligence reports until I got to Iraq, I think. And, and that was a bad way of looking at it. I guess I just looked at, you know, cause I remember somebody telling a story and, and maybe it was, uh, and I don't, I won't mention the intelligence uh, operational specialist in Naples that I worked with on this was, but uh, was notorious for reading a newspaper, Italian newspapers, and then putting out IRs on that. Now there's some, there's some value uh, to that, I suppose, but um, when I got to Iraq and I realized how much spot reports and IARs meant to the battle plan, then I realized, oh, so this is what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and this is why this is important. Open source reporting, and we had a whole section of mm-hmm. source reporters mm-hmm. and do IIRs. The humaners and the CI guys did different streams of reporting and your open source, they have a whole 
OSINT course now and, and things like that. Wow. But uh, they are important, but in a different way than other things that, you know, when you're going to have that, that talent that, that needs to go out and coordinate with people. Yeah. Occasionally, it was a segue that you could uh, read about something and say, hey, my boss asked about this. Mm-hmm. You know, they would say, oh, yeah, this is really the crux of it is this. Yeah. And you have something more that you could put into a report as a reporter comment. Well, I know that a lot of stuff that you guys did, especially working with the Polizia di Stato and uh, the Italian Carabinieri, and of course, uh, the Guardia di Finanza uh, or whatever. They, yep. I, I can remember the work that you guys did those, like, because you're uh, fluent Italian speakers out there talking to those guys on a daily basis and, and having those relationships. I know that we had some great lunches uh, because of you guys. Uh, and we benefited from those lunches greatly because of the intelligence that you would gather from those lunches, just having conversations with guys. And, and people would think, oh, they're just going out to lunch. But the thing is, is when my boss is meeting their boss. Oh, yeah. And they now know, yes, this is a good, coherent, very above board type relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have, I said, <laughs> we had a couple of different PSDs there while I was there. Bush's son came over and visited when he was in office. And then we had the uh, Powers was his name and someone else who came over and met with the Italian uh, general of the Guardia di Finanza in Naples. And they took us out on their new craft. And uh, that was was a couple of very, very good meetings. You know what, because I always loved about the Italians, they always loved a good meeting. Um, They were always in for that. And uh, (laughs) and we all laugh about that, but... Man, those meetings m- meant so much um, to the uh, to the to our world as well. I mean, um, certainly as a partner, uh, we wanted to be good partners with the Italians, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the, they were they knew how to have a good time uh, to make the uh, make the party uh, lively, if you will. And yeah, and I, I know that I know that Sal was always good at getting those those parties together, uh, and we loved. Uh, the Sal parties, that's for sure. So, yeah, Bortone was was definitely above and beyond for that. And he, <laughs> you know, he was a good man with a good heart. Yeah, he was. I remember. Uh, I still laugh about about in, in how good he was at Italian opera singing. Um, <laughs> we had these lunches, and, and he'd break into song, and and man, it's just a, you can't replace those memories. That. That gives me every time I go back to Naples and Kathy and I try to get back to Naples every couple of years now uh, just to visit our Italian friends. Um, but I still go in those restaurants and I still hear Sal singing. And I know that he's singing up where up there somewhere now. Oh, yeah. And enjoying life. So a good man for sure. Well, I have two sons that uh, both live over there. Is that right? And one of them's in a, the restaurant type business. Uh-huh. My other son does stuff for the U.S. State Department. So they're in a good location for sure. Yeah, he is. He's uh, he's going to be uh, involved in some of those things over there. Very good, very good. And your other son that's running the restaurant. I'm sure. Uh, 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 any specialty? Or are they just an Italian restaurant? Just Italians, you know, regular things. He doesn't yeah. 
I wished he did, but you know, yeah. he's doing what he does. <laughs> it's That's funny. The whole Italian thing. It's funny. People ask us, what's the best Italian restaurant you've had in, uh, in the United States? I said, well, here's the thing. I met, we couldn't find really anything that matched anything I had in Naples the whole time I was there. But when we moved to Prescott, Arizona, little Prescott, Arizona, we met these two Neapolitan guys that opened up a, a place called Limoncello's and they brought over their pizza oven and they still got connections. You know, we always talked about the people that are going to bring, I'm open up a restaurant. This I'm going to bring the Buffalo over and I'm going to, you know, the cheese and, you know, all the, and then I'm going to bring the Morizano sauce over. And, uh, and these guys ha have the best pizza I've had since Naples. And it's, it cost me an arm and a leg, but it's a good, it's a good pizza. It's a ne Neapolitan pizza. Well, where I'm living today and you're going to, this is a unbelievable story how I fell in here because, yeah. you know, Utica has an entire Italian culture here from the First World War on. Is that right? And there are several teams that send up for the pastries from two different bakeries here in the Utica area. And you, they have the Italian pizza ovens. They have all the different. There is a uh, Trattoria Abruzzo, which is from the Abruzzo area. Oh, wow. Another one from the Neapolitan area. And I get my fix on my, you know, where they take the pizza and put it on the <laughs> thing in there. They've got the holes going. Yeah. It sounds like a little slice of heaven up there for sure. It's fun. <laughs> you don't have to go back to Naples like Kathy and I do. You, you got it right there. No, we were planning a trip. We had the last few years of, you know, but I think we're going back over. Yeah. Well, I'm just waiting for this COVID stop, stuff to stop so we can uh, get back on planes without mask again and, and go over there. So I hope that'll Totally in agreement. Yeah. So I hope that'll end soon. So tell me about your time afterwards. Uh, well, some of the stuff you did with the army, I know you got the bronze star in Iraq in 2011. Can you, can you mention anything on that uh, operation that, uh, that got the bronze star? That was a series of uh, operations that I did. Uh, the general that I translated for as well, he presented it to me in the old chapel that was in Basra, Iraq. It was interesting because they caught me by surprise i did not know i was getting it i figured i'm getting an arcom army yeah. foundation medal you know yeah uh, that to me was pretty good the yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be recognized and i'm sure you did very well deserved obviously obviously a meritorious service medal that i got from the army mm -hmm. was uh my colonel and that was at the end of my when i retired is that right and uh Good. My sons were there. My wife was there. And it was the best moment ever for my retirement to do. And my wife tried to bring them over on the sly, but it just didn't work out. Uh, but that was great. Um, DHS, when I retired, I was at headquarters, mm -hmm. came out to the field to be a field operative again. They offered me to go back to headquarters. So I turned down a 14. You know, there's something to be said about happiness in, in the job. I loved it. I, yeah. could, I just couldn't do it. I talked to my wife, the best person uh, that I know that can 
keep me on track. Um, she she definitely deserves a medal. As a matter of fact, the colonel went to her and he said, you know, we can turn this reenlistment, I mean, this retirement off. We can, if you want, you know, he can he can stay. We'll bring him on full time. And I said, no, 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 no. And, you know, when you can't do the PT test and can't run as fast as everybody else, right. uh, I came back from Iraq with a few ailments. I have the burn pit syndrome. Oh, no. A little bit of lung problems, but you know, I have no complaints. Yeah. I, I needed to do DHS one. Uh, they gave me a medal and I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. Yeah, it'd be great. Intelligence medal on service. And they gave me a flag that had flew over uh, DHS headquarters. Very nice ceremony. And my uh, supervisor came up from New York City and came up here. That's another thing that anyone that's with NIS should look around and find out who the DHS reps are out. You know, they also have them overseas in some of the ports. Interesting. Because I know the, I know uh, the office Pendleton out here has um, a really good relationship with DHS out here and does stuff quite a <clears throat> task force relationship. They have, um, I guess, two or three members on the FBI task force, which DHS is a part of as well. And they're doing some really interesting stuff with cross-border um, stuff. So it's kind of interesting being around here and seeing some of that go on. When you look back over your career all these years, and you've had so much stuff that you've done, and I, I we could probably talk a, a year about some of the stuff. Is there any of these, uh, any cases that you've ever worked on that you have regrets about or that you wish that we'd have done something different or believed it could have been, it would have been done better if we have done it another way? Well, I wish that Jim Lofstrom and I had gotten more drugs than uh, and narcotics during that bust. Later, mm. I heard it was uh, Frank Harmon has the record now, and we only have that right for the drug narcotics back in the. <laughs> You know, uh, just speaking of Jim, uh, there in D.C., he's still in D.C. I think he's doing some Anuda work for us now, but um, he is such a great, uh, that guy is, what a, what a tremendous, smart, smart guy uh, to be around and be a partner with. I, I can imagine you all had a lot of fun. I've talked to him a couple of, yeah, I talk to Jim every so often, uh, in touch with a, a few different people, uh -huh. you know? And uh, it's been good. My leadership positions, I tell you, you know, NIST does prepare people for them. Yeah. And I stayed with NIST at headquarters. I could have gone up. Yeah, sure. Post-retirement, I'm enjoying every day. Me and my wife have every day is a Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a and, great uh, feeling? Every day is a Saturday? It is great. And yeah. um, sometimes I have to ask her, what day is today? <laughs> I've got a few books behind me over here, as you can uh, see, there's, I do a lot of, uh, looking at the 1800s books of the stories of the revolution. I'm right now editing, uh, two manuscripts of a friend of mine who was a, he's an engineer from up here and he uh -huh. written a couple books on the, uh, history up here as well. If somebody comes to Utica, New York, you're the guy to reach out to to go and do a battlefield walkthrough, I'm sure, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's the uh, bloodiest battle of the revolution is happened up here, Oriskany. And Oriskany Battlefield, just before the town, they've got a propeller off the, or 
original ship, the Oriskany, and a museum of all the Oriskany stuff in there. That is cool. That's cool. So can you talk a little bit about the Revolutionary War there in Utica area uh, for what what because people see blue coats, red coats. But I mean, I'm sure there it was a quite different of a war. And can you talk a little bit about that? Here it was brown coats, which were the good guys. Mm -hmm. And then there were some blue coats, as you say, the Continentals. Mm -hmm. But mostly this was all militia. You had brothers against brothers. You had, it was a civil war and had the Indians in the mix. And a lot of people think the Indians were all for the British, but they weren't. Yeah. The Oneida Indians here, which actually they provided people down to uh, Valley Forge. Mm. And they also were involved in a charge that saved Lafayette's life. See, now I don't need, you don't hear about these stories. This is stuff that I, I suppose that you, as you research this stuff, you could consider mate, writing a book on of local history there. Uh, I've thought about, you know, and I'm kicking around the idea to, to help him. I may get uh, some credit in it, but uh, I like it just to do it. Uh, General Herkimer was wounded. He, at the Battle of Oriskany, mm-hmm. uh, he kept the Americans going and fighting. Two colonels got killed right in the initial rush. And then at the end of it all, uh, he didn't get to where he wanted to, which was Fort Stanwix, but at Oriskany, he stopped the British from doing what they wanted to do. And uh, there's, even today, the butlers, there's Canadian butler family, uh, butler house, butler's house still exists. Uh, up until a few years ago, there was a tavern here that was built right before the revolution and still here. Uh, General Herkimer's house is still here and still intact. And so, you know, to, to visit this area, there's a lot of different things. General Herkimer, was he regular um, army or was he militia? He was a militia general. Okay. And uh, one of the four forebears of, you know, as the militia was of the National Guard. I taught a staff course on the Battle of Oriskany and took officers around and had some different things of unity of command, what, why that's important why there's a chain of command and why you just don't go running off and doing your own thing when you're told to do something else. Cause all of that led to a lot of problems out here. Why was the battle of Oriskany an important battle in your, in your opinion? They were attempting to relieve Fort Stanwix, which was under siege okay. and part of a three pronged attack by the British, which ended up in Saratoga was the second prong. And St. Leger, who was the British commander, was coming in to meet up with Burgoyne down in Saratoga outside of um, Albany. And then there was supposed to have been a uh, force up from the city, but the British commanders also didn't cooperate well, and uh, that fizzled out. And so it it became that they did not get Fort Stanwix here, so they didn't get their objective. They didn't go down through the Mohawk Valley, and the Mohawk Valley was one of the principal areas of wheat production for the revolution for everybody down in uh, New Jersey and New York. You sent me some information on a Polish commander who really kind of 
went down to West Point and designed the defense. That was a very strategic point on the Hudson River. Um, can you talk a little bit about this Polish? Because I have a really interesting uh, story about that Polish commander after you explain why who the guy was. In, in... Kukusku. Yeah, Kukusku. The, uh, the fortifications were West Point, and that brought in Benedict Arnold. And if you look at here, Benedict Arnold came up and controlled Continentals that were coming up to relieve the losses that Herkimer had. And they captured a uh, Indian, part Indian, part part just, you know, Caucasian. And this guy, Panieri, was, they were going to put him to death along with a couple of other people they had captured. His mother came over and one of his sons was held hostage while he, with other Indians, went to Fort Stanwix. See, we can go off on a lot of tangents. So back in about 1997, I took the Polish defense minister. I was his PSD, PSO detail leader. uh, And we went to West Point. I learned about Kukusku during that time in our visit to West Point. And until you go to West Point and you see where it is on that, on that river, you realize how strategic it is. And had that battle had, had, uh, uh, had the plans of West Point been lost, uh, how crucial it was to the, the New York theater of fighting in this Revolutionary War. There's also a Kukusku monument on Saratoga, the battlefield of Saratoga. Interesting. Okay. And here in Utica, there's a street and a park. <laughs> Named Kukusku Street, huh? Yep. Well, he's a, yeah, he, the, the <laughs> Polish um, defense minister was very proud of the fact that of the Polish history. Uh, in the United States. And um, it was, I think that was a big, that was a big, uh, I remember we left that uh, and flew across country to a base and we're coming back. And I guess they made a deal to buy F-15s or some, some kind of military uh, things as Poland was kind of traditional uh, transitioning away from Warsaw Pact type military items and moving to more NATO related stuff, American made stuff. And uh, he came out with a bottle of, uh, of uh, vodka and toasted everybody, including me, everybody in the plane. And we all had a, a toast uh, to the American and Polish friendship. I thought that was really cool. Um, but it really was that meeting at West Point where they talked about how important Polish Poles were in the history of the United States and how crucial they were during a very, uh, very critical time in the uh, before the United States was born. So it was just a really cool moment. And uh, up here in this area, Baron von Steuben. Oh, of course. Farm. Uh-huh. And, and there's a, a monument to him on his farm area and a recreated uh, farmhouse. Now, I've heard stories that Baron von Steuben uh, kind of gave himself the promotion to be Baron. That he was. Uh, have you ever heard the story that he was, uh, the reason why he was so good at instruction and drill instruction was because he was like a sergeant in the uh, in the Prussian army, or something like that. I I had heard things of it, but he did he did come from more common than a baron, yeah. but more like a sergeant major or like you know. And he yeah. did have several uh, very good positions before he came over here to the U.S. He fascinating the Revolution War. I love talking about Revolution War. I have ancestors that. <laughs> That, that fought in it as well. And uh, so I love talking stories of American Revolution. Uh, to me, it's uh, it's fascinating and how it led to the French Revolution and, and you know, and how that started moments in history down the line. So 
Um, I really they didn't have they didn't have an ONI or a NIS <laughs> that, that held them back. Yeah, I think so. I only if it had that. I love you know. I, I tell a story. He said, "Well, how did what was the real reason?" I said, "Well, in my mind, the real reason ONI was uh, was uh, became an important role in the U.S. Navy." was because we only had, we need, we had wooden hold ships and we needed steel hold ships and we needed people to go out there and figure out how to do it. So it was <laughs> in the 1880s, get out there guys and let's find some steel hold ships. Let's go find out what the Germans are doing. So it's like, we're involved in technology theft in the late 1880s and 1890s. So it's good stuff. <laughs> oh, that's Bob, still yeah. a problem. It's still a problem. Now people are coming to us. Now I think we'll be stealing from the Chinese because they stole the stuff from us. So we'll have to see how that goes. Mm. Crazy stories. It's hard to make this stuff up. I, I tell you, I could I could keep going for a long time. <laughs> well, Bob, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, is there anything else that you want to talk about, mention um, before we sign off for the day? Not at all, but I, I'll tell you, you know, anyone who's thinking about it uh, as a career, uh, an intel operations specialist or an uh, intelligence analyst is, you know, if you're not sure you want to make the whole commitment to be an 1811, you know, 0132 isn't that bad. 0132, they're critical of the agency. And it's hard and then, getting them these days. Everybody wants them. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as seen from you, it's like you're, you're, you're throughout the federal government. You can it just shows your personal experience of how much 132s are crucial to every organization. Interesting, I was doing an interview with uh, with um, um, Douglas Hubbard, who um, was an 1811 at first, and he served three years in Vietnam. Ended up leaving the organization and going to work for the British South African Police. And wow. he was he was severely injured there, and uh, that was kind of the end of his life. But he suffered badly from Agent Orange exposure. But he tried to come back in the seventies to be a one thirty two and in, in, intelligence analyst. And I don't I'm not even sure there were intelligence analysts of a one thirty two variety in the seventies. But he wanted and uh, he contacted NIS, and NIS said uh, we don't need that. What do you? We don't even know what that is. So it was like. He goes, they hadn't invented that yet, but he was obviously a guy who was thinking out of the box and looking at something that would be very important in the future. And guys like you who were um, crucial in our organization's history and what you did uh, while you're in Naples and in Washington, D.C. during a crucial time in the history of changing over, targeting of foes, um, we surely appreciate the time that you've given us and the time you've given the federal government. So I appreciate that. And thank you for being on the show. Today. Thank you. Thank you very much. What a great interview with Bob Fletcher. Uh, true professional that he was. Uh, his time with us was um, tremendous. And he used that um, to help the U.S. government in other ways. Um, so happy to have Bob on the show today. He was a lot of fun to talk to. Really enjoyed uh, his perspective on the New York New York theater of operations during the Revolutionary War. Um, just a great conversation in general. Really appreciate you listening to this week's show. Uh, thank everybody for listening on the podcast. Um, we've got over 1,600 uh, listens now, and that's a tremendous uh, uh, growing audience every week. 
Uh, I appreciate everything you guys do. Thank you very much for listening. And um, I, please, I encourage you to keep going to the show uh, and listen and give me some feedback. Uh, send your uh, emails to ncispodcast at yahoo.com. That's ncispodcast at yahoo.com. And I'd love to hear your comments. Uh, also, love to hear your ideas. Um, hey, I'm not an expert at this, but I want to make this interesting for everyone. Uh, the history of NCIS is an amazing story, an amazing American story. So, thanks for listening. Keep on listening. Until next week, fair winds following the seas. We'll see you next time. <laughs>